In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Good morning, my friends. It's a beautiful morning. Time to get up and go to work. You guys going to work? Some of you going to work on some coffee? Some of you going to work on a... In your car, in your truck? It's Thursday. That's what time it is. You want to know what time it is? It's Thursday time. Unless, of course, you're a different part of the world. And it could be a different day. Shoot, it could be a different year. You know in Saudi Arabia and like the Islamic calendar, you know what year it is? 1441. It's 1441. Now this is probably going to be wrong. I probably shouldn't say this. But sometimes, and this is just from a Western point of view, albeit a non-educated Western point of view, but there are some people that think some of the customs in the Middle East are from the Middle Ages, which would make sense because the year is 1441. So why wouldn't it be in the Middle Ages? And that kind of gets you thinking, if, if indeed that is the Middle Ages, people in the Isla- people, some people that belong to that calendar must look at us and go, oh my gosh. If that's what the future looks like, I want no part of it. I want no part of it. What it's so like the whole time thing, right? We should have a we should have a talk on time. Hey man, you got the time? Yeah, I got the time. What time is it? When? When you asked me or right now? What time do you want to meet? Ah, different time, different calendars. It's 2012 in Ethiopia on that calendar. It's year 5780 on the Hebrew calendar. 
I guess, I think I read somewhere that each, you know when you look at a map and you see the lines of latitude and the lines of longitude, on each meridian, it's technically a different time. However, in order to streamline business and communication, we just had to do what we do best and lie to ourselves about what time it is. How would you define time? I think, I think one good way to define time is the movement of objects in space. And the way it was described to me is that if you had a telescope and you were looking up into the abyss and all you saw was one planet, you couldn't really tell if that planet was moving because you have nothing to compare it against. So you would need another object in space. So you would need another object out there to see, to compare and contrast movement. And you would need a third object up there to truly understand the dynamics. Thus time is a measurement of objects in space. It's a man-made concept. It's a way we, in some ways, I think it is a tricky concept to help human beings understand their environment. But it's been used pretty sinister, I think. You ever have people say, hey man, I don't want you to waste my time. Hey, you're wasting my time. No, you're wasting my time. In the immortal words of Jeff Spicoli, if you're here and I'm here, doesn't that make it our time? If anybody, like that's a, that's a, that's a good argument or that, that would be a fun one to be in. Like next time you have someone complain to you about you wasting their time, you tell those people to fuck off. That's our time, goddammit. You and me. I'm not wasting your time. You're wasting my time. And why does it get to be your time? Why does it get to be their time? What about lunchtime? Break time? Beer 30? That's a good time. Of course, it's always 5 o'clock somewhere. concept of time. That is a strange one. We're so... enamored by time. People wearing watches. I got a clock in my... I got one on my phone. I have one in my car. There's one on the wall. We're obsessed with time. You only get 100 years to live. Is that enough time? There's not enough hours in a day. This day drags on forever. Everything we do is... Has a time component to it, I think. That guy's a lifer. He's a short timer. Hey, remember that one time? I guess everybody has enough time, right? 
also, let me shift gears in here and talk about education a little bit. Because I think it's time. See what I did there? (laughs) I was thinking today, I was listening to a lecture of this professor, and he was really good. I think it was Jordan Peterson. And he was just talking about meaning and, and behavior and motivations and As I was listening to that lecture, I was thinking about my kid getting ready to go back to school and how they are going to establish coronavirus procedures for children. And so I'm thinking about those two things and I'm kind of listening to the lecture but thinking about education and I began thinking about how education is going to change forever and how might that look and might there be a way to unchain teachers from a curriculum that is sponsored by authoritarians that maybe don't want the best interest for our kids. Does that make sense? Let me just back it up a little bit because I know it's a mouthful. The modern public day school system, a.k.a. Horace Mann, is built on the Prussian system of education, which is all about training obedient workers. That's why you got bells. That's why you got whistles. That's why you have 20 kids sitting in a class, staring up, literally having their heads tilted up looking at an authority figure they're training kids from a young age to be obedient workers and that is bullshit we don't need obedient workers and if you think we need obedient workers i think you should be punched in the face and in fact i if i will do it for you okay so how do we create curriculums where we teach kids to be statesmen. We teach kids to understand communication. We teach children how to magnify the human relationship. Right? That's the purpose of a relationship is to magnify the human experience. And that should be the foundation for modern day curriculum. So one thought that I had is if you look at the school systems, And now we're going to talk about the university systems and the teachers there and professors and and getting tenure and, and whatnot. And the way I want to introduce that is to briefly talk about a movie that I saw as a kid that you may have seen. And if you haven't seen, you should... You should look, you should watch it. It's with Rodney Dangerfield and it's called Old School. And it's about this kind of a blue collar working guy who owned his own business, you know, became really rich from it, but he never finished college. So he thought it would be a great idea now that he's, his kid just went away to college and him as a father says, you know what? I never finished college. I'm going to go back to college and finish it with my son. So, you know, it's it's pretty funny. It's the interaction between his son and him and then, 
him as a businessman with a lot with a lifetime of experience going to college and kind of confronting professors and teachers there. And there's some really funny parts where he's in an economics class and the professor is talking about economic theory and building a fictional product and the you know Rodney Dangerfield is the businessman is like well what are we going to build and the guy's like we're going to build tape recorders and Rodney Dangerfield says tape recorders are you kidding me we're going to get killed by the the Japanese economy on labor people in China will destroy us on labor we can't make that here the economy professor is like okay fine we're going to make a widget and Rodney Dangerfield says well a widget what's a widget and the guy says it's a fictional product it doesn't matter and then Rodney Dangerfield says, well, if it's a fictional product, we might as well make it in fantasy land. And it just goes to show, like, the whole movie talks a lot about reality and education. Theory versus reality. And it seems to me that a lot of the people who are in academia for their entirety of their life have spent their entire life trying to get approval for their PhDs and trying to get approval for their theoretical ideas from other people who have been in the academic system for their whole life, who in turn had to kiss the ring of the previous person who was in a position of authority in academia. It doesn't take too much thought to understand that what a bubble that is. So might it be better that, you know, if, if, if the gold standard for a college professor is to have a PhD and have tenure at a prestigious university, maybe we should change that gold standard to, hey, you can't have the PhD degree until you've graduated a series of college courses and then gone out into the world and actually excelled the very field you claim to be an expert in. Only then can you get tenure. Only then can you get the prestigious spot at a prestigious school. And that would be the beginning. There could be a like a follow-up. Maybe that would be the ma- maybe that would make you a have a master's degree. But you could only obtain the doctorate level if you were to have, say, 100 or 1,000 or 50 or whatever the magic number is, you have to have at least 1,000 students become masters in that field you teach. The students you teach have to excel at the highest levels in order for you as a teacher to achieve the PhD. You see, now... We're at the level where, like, that's what Talib describes about having skin in the game. I think it could, I think it could redefine the university experience. Right? There's too many. There's too many people buying their way into the university systems that don't really belong there. 
You know what I mean by that? Like, remember there was that girl who just, she, she paid like some headhunters. I don't know. What'd she pay him? 200 grand each to buy a soccer scholarship for her daughters that weren't even that good at soccer. Remember that? The best, the, the, one of the funniest parts about that was that, uh, after that whole scandal was going, Dr. Dre tweets out, yeah, I'm so proud of my baby. She did it on her own. And then right underneath that dummy's tweet, it was like, hey, didn't you donate a building to that school, dumbass? And then he took his tweet down. <laughs> oh, Dr. Dre. That's funny. That's funny. It's funny to me because I think I laugh at the egomaniacs because I'm kind of an egomaniac. And I laugh at it because I'm like, ah, that's so dumb. What a stupid person. And then I think to myself, I probably would have done something like that. It's just weird how you see that stuff. But yeah, that's one idea on education. I think, I think we could change that. I think we have to change that. <clears throat> Another part of education I was thinking about is that at an early age, we, this is the one I've kind of, I've been toying with a few different educational ideas in my head and I try to work them out on my daughter and, and one for, for communication that I have found is that, you know, you can watch people have conversations and learn a lot. So I was thinking about designing a curriculum where you know, you bring in, <clears throat> so you bring in a couple, let's say a man and a woman, and that man and woman have a conversation, one where they talk about, you know, maybe a 20 minute conversation about, it could be about whatever, for, let's just say they talk about current events, and so the couple would come in. They would sit down in front of the class and they would have that conversation. Simultaneously, the conversation would be videotaped. So they would have their conversation and the teacher would write down notes. The, the people with the, the man and the woman would talk. It would be videoed and there would also be a transcript of what happened. And the couple would get up and they would leave. And the teacher would talk to the students about what happened in that conversation. And everybody would get a chance to talk about it and the teacher would talk about it. And then they would, directly after that, they would bring the couple back in and they would have another conversation. Hey, here's what we noticed about your guys' conversation. And now the couple could give feedback on what they thought about the conversation to the children and the teacher. Then, then after that little Q&A, they would play the tape back to the entire group. And they could point out things that were brought up. And I... After that, they would play the video again without any sound. 
and the students, the teacher, and the couple would just watch the video without any sound. So you have the initial conversation, you have the video with sound, and the video without sound. And I believe that if so you're engaging different stimuli, you're engaging different parts of the brain, you're engaging and understanding language on a different level, even though it's the same conversation. And I, it may seem redundant. However, I think it's far from that. Because what happens in a conversation is a lot of nonverbal cues. <clears throat> and I think that you could point out, like, <clears throat> let's just say that, you know, in a lot of conversations, there is, especially between a man and a woman, there is an underlying... an underlying nonverbal communication of attraction. Just like between a man and a man, there's an underlying level of communication that is violent. Between a man and a woman, on some underlying level, there is always a level of attraction or maybe a level of repulsion but it's two it's a different side of the same it's it's you know opposite sides of the coin and always between men and men there is a threat there that's just part of our nature which brings up the quick anecdote remember the scorpion the scorpion and the frog they go down to the river and the Maybe it's not a scorpion and a frog. Maybe it's a scorpion and a beetle. And the the beetle says, hey, I can't really swim. And the scorpion says, no problem, I'll take you across. And the beetle's like, nah, man. He's like, I, I, I can't go with you. You're a scorpion. And the scorpion's like, so? Well, you don't like scorpions? And he goes, no, you're a scorpion, man. I'm going to get out. We'll get halfway out that river and then you'll sting me and I'll die. The scorpion's like, come on, man. You're going to believe that old trope? And so the beetle doesn't want to be like a racist or anything. So he's like, okay, fine. I got to get across. So he jumps on the back of the scorpion. They get halfway across the river. The scorpion, pow, flings its stinger over and just, pow, stings him. Kills the bug. Kills the beetle. But right before the beetle dies, he's like, why'd you do that? And the scorpion said, it's in my nature. It's in my nature. So getting back to the conversation, the children, when the video is off, I'm sorry, when the video is on, but the sound is off, I think that you could see that attraction. Let's say that the man and the woman were flirting on a small scale. The chances are there's going to be some pupil dilation. The chances are there's going to be some flushing in the cheeks. And I think if you could point that out to the children in the class, Hey, at this point in time, they were talking about the weather. Remember that? And the kids be, oh yeah, this is where the man said, it's a beautiful day out there. It reminds me of your smile. 
right? And you could point that out in the conversation. And then when the sound was off, instead of hearing those words, the children could see the man's smile and they could see the woman's face maybe get a little flush. They could see the woman's eyes dilate. And they could understand what was happening there. They could understand that these are the underlying dynamics in conversation that make people feel, believe, or act in a certain way. The same thing could be done between women and women and men and men. If you have two men, you know, you could show the same thing, but maybe there was a challenge in there where one guy is decides to put the other guy down a little bit and maybe his fists get clenched. You see, if in a verbal conversation, if you're making eye contact or you are just someone who is watching that conversation, especially as a child, you're not going to be tuned into those cues. But if you learn at an early age by watching the actual conversation, by watching a taped conversation, and then by watching a taped conversation without any volume, you could cue into those specifics. And children who are taught to look for all the different cues in a conversation will indeed be effective communicators later in life. I would argue that that is a foundation for statesmen. That is a foundation for politics. That is in fact a foundation for a successful life is being a successful communicator. And if you're not taught the basic ideas of communication at an early age, you are at a loss. You are already behind the times. I would also argue that learning these particular parts of communication help to help to cultivate the skills of critical thinking. They help the artist paint the picture of passion. They help the sculptor sculpt the Venus de Milo of validity. They help the poet put out the precious, fragile picture of purposeful love. And communication is the foundation of every subject. If you can read the verbal cues of people, if you can read their anxiety, if you can read their emotional state, then you can better know what techniques, words, or ideas would be most helpful to that person at that time. In order, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And the only way we move forward from the fall of man is to have a return to the golden age, to have a return to the classical structure A sort of renaissance, a rebirth, 
rebuilding the world with new materials that seek to make beauty the very cornerstone of our society. You know what I mean? Like, if you're surround, you are your environment. You are the people you surround yourself with. If you can create beauty around you, if you can have the critical thinking and you can have the, the engaging conversations and you can have the belief system then you can build the world you want. And I think that that is something that, you know, as I get older, the more I think about one of my purposes here on the planet is to try to leave it better than we found it, right? Too often we get whether it's consciously or unconsciously, we get our beaks stuck to the chalk line where all of a sudden we're just doing things just to do them. It's a habit. And there's plenty of, of authoritarian societal structures that try to keep us on that, on that wheel, right? Like you could argue that's what taxes are about. You know, you, the, They don't need our money. They can just print that shit. But they want you to be in debt. They want you... Okay, let me clarify they. Anytime someone says they, you should always say, well, who are they? So in this case, they would be the government. They would be the the social engineers that aim to keep our economy moving. The central bankers, the IRS... The people who control the money supply. You know, there is a real form of behavior modification in taxes. Right? They, they, the, when you as an individual pay taxes, when you as an individual are in debt, you're stuck. You're an indentured servant. Right, you have to pay or they're coming to take your house. The more debt you have, the more of a slave you are. You know, if you have a... Here's like... Think about it from this perspective. So many people when they buy a house, they're so excited. Like, yeah, I got this house. It's so great. And let's say you have like a, I don't know, $450,000 house. You're paying, what, 4%. So... You know, the first few years, you're paying like seven grand a year on your $450,000 house. Seven grand a year? That's nothing, man. That's what goes to your principal. The rest is just all profit for whoever holds your loan. Like seven grand, that's all you're paying on the house? And on some level, you're like, man, this housing payment's killing me. It's $2,700 a month. And you start doing the math. You're like, wait a minute, that's too... Two, that's 25. Jesus Christ, you're looking at 30 grand a year, but only seven goes to the principal? You see, it's a... It's a system designed to keep you 
working. It's a system designed to keep the people on the bottom at the bottom. I'm not saying you can't rise to the top. You definitely can do that. If you're willing to work hard and make sacrifices and and not listen to the crowd, then you can definitely find ways to climb that ladder. And for those of us, you know, everybody's at a different level in life. Everybody's at a different economic point. However, because we are in the situation we're in now, it's a good time to start trying to redesign your life and the life of your children and the life of your community. These are all ideas that you can have. These are all ideas that you can implement today. These are all ideas that the person next to you would probably be receptive to. These are all universal ideas that regardless of race or gender or color, all human beings would be susceptible to. And that is the kind of ideas we need to bring us together and move forward. I had another thought. I was thinking about uh, about the whole coronavirus. I talked about it a little bit yesterday, so I'll just talk about it briefly today. The more I think about it, like we're we're at war, right? This is clearly some sort of a soft war. Did you see the Chinese embassy in Houston on fire, burning documents? Everything in the Middle East is heating up. The presidential race is a dog and pony show. There's secret police in Portland picking people up. Is that even federal police or is that like a private security company? Remember Kissinger? Kissinger wrote in a book, I believe that the American troops are not going to go and arrest Americans. But that doesn't hold true for United Nations troops. They don't give a fuck about dragging Americans away. The same goes for private security forces that are made up of special forces from around the world. They don't give a fuck about Americans. They don't give a fuck about the Constitution. They don't give a fuck about the Bill of Rights. And I think that's what we're beginning to see. Like The World Health Organization? Get the fuck out of here, dude. We're not... We're the goddamn United States of America. We got our own stuff. We don't need the World Health Organization. That's for fucking everybody else. The United Nations beat it. We fucking, 
We pay you. You work for us. But see, that's being brought over here. All of these world organizations are being brought to this country to supersede our local government and our federal government. You know, and, and on some level, I could understand why people may think it's a good idea. Hey, maybe, you know, you could say like, well, America uses way too many resources and it leaves the rest of the world in a position without, a, without resources and it's not fair. It's a valid point. It's a valid point. So then you follow that rabbit hole down a little bit and you go, okay, well, well how, how could it be more equitable? Well, you know, we could have, you know, if we have people from other countries all participating in a, you know, a world senate or a world court or, or whatever it is, things could be distributed more effective and efficiently. And you know what scares me about that? Okay, now, this may be naive on my part. But I, I think, and I could be wrong, this could be totally naive. I think a lot of people come to the United States for education, be it the Ivy League or a lot of other really good schools. A lot of people come here. I think it was uh, Mugabe, right? The guy from South Africa. His wife had a PhD in economics. But then when you research, maybe it wasn't economics, but she had a PhD from somewhere. But then when you looked at the place where she got her PhD, it was like a goddamn diploma mill. Right? So if you have some third world countries handing out fucking PhDs like their Tic Tacs to people that are unqualified, what happens when that unqualified Tic Tac diploma motherfucker is sitting on top of a fucking organization that is very important. They're going to squander fucking everything. They're going to lose all that shit. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. And how many people around the world, fuck, even in our country, have a goddamn TikTok diploma, have a fucking, a TikTok diploma and sitting in charge of shit thinking they know things. Have you seen some of... Man, this might sting a little bit, but have you guys seen some of the people that graduate from private colleges with a fucking master's or like a goddamn PhD in business or marketing? Like, dude, all they did was pay their 50 fucking grand. Like, I've looked at the syllabus. I've looked at the courses. I've listened to the lectures of some of the private colleges where people come out with higher education. And I got to tell you, these people are fucking morons. But they, they walk out with this piece of paper and this inflated ego and then they walk into a place of business and think they know what the fuck they're doing. They don't. They don't. And that's... See, this gets me back full circle to how we got to change the education system. People that haven't excelled in the field in which they claim to be a master at should not have the title of master. You should not get a master's degree without being successful economically, socially, 
There should be some sort of metrics we could judge that on before you can become a teacher. You can't teach people what you don't know. And how can anybody know what the hell you know if all you have is a theory? I get it, I get it. They're all, everything's theoretical, George. Everything's theoretical. But if you could point to, yeah, hey, maybe this is a theory. But I started right here at the fucking very bottom. And in 25 years, dude, no one can touch me. So let me tell you my theories about how you go from there to here. I'm not saying they're accurate, but I'm saying here's a set of strategies that I used backed up by experience that got me here. That's a real teacher. That's a real mentor. That's a real pathway for someone to use as a path to get where you are and hopefully past you. That's how you, right? Each one, teach one. When you make it to the top, reach back and offer your hand. I think that's one way we can move education forward. But yeah, it's, I think we're in that war and we are, it's a, it's a global war right now. It's a global software. And I would say, I would argue that it was, it's like a, a technocratic takeover. And I, I don't, it's so hard to know who's on what side. Like there's no clear enemy. And it's by design, right? If you knew who the enemy was, you could fight him. It's by design and it's, I can't say it's a flawed strategy because I don't truly understand the long-term winners and losers. I don't, I don't truly understand the war that's happening. I know what's happening, you know, but I don't know if, whose side is Bill Gates on? Right, let's think, let, let's, just, let's just try to unpack this part. Okay, if, if you read the research on that guy, that guy is a billionaire. He gives the most money to the World Health Organization. He's the number two behind the U.S. government. His father was big into eugenics. Bill Gates is big into eugenics. I don't necessarily think eugenics is a bad thing. That might land me in hot water. It depends on how you define eugenics. Is it a slippery slope? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if Bill Gates' father was a eugenicist and the the idea of eugenics was big in World War II. Who was it that the eugenicists tried to get rid of? Who was it that the eugenicists decided were inferior? I'm not saying I agree with their theory. I am just pointing out some 
idea so we can get a better handle on who Bill Gates might be and whose team he may be on. Well, if you think about it logically, I think that most men travel a pattern similar to their father, whether they know it consciously or unconsciously. As a man who rebels as a boy who rebels becomes a man who becomes a father who becomes his own father you know what i mean by that like you become your dad you find yourself telling stories you find yourself making decisions and you find yourself understanding why your dad did the things that he did so if we just say that that is probably true then it's probably safe to say that Bill, Je- Bill Gates thinks a lot like his father who believed the old theories of eugenesis. If you think about it logically, okay, think about it logically. Bill Gates is all, being smeared all over the media, right? Like that guy's enemy number one. People hate that guy. He's trying to kill people. He wants you to give you, he wants to give you this crazy vaccine. He wants to inject you with the goddamn micro dot. He wants to, you know, test out all these things on people and whatnot. Well, who owns the media? The people, the people that are smearing and trying to destroy Bill Gates are the same people that Bill Gates' father wanted to get rid of. Does that make sense? You gotta... I want to keep it vague so that you can do your own critical thinking. Right? So that... If you just think about that, if the people trying to destroy Bill Gates are the same people that Bill Gates' father was trying to get rid of. What? How do, how do those two camps break up? Is Bill Gates on the side of big tech? Or does Bill Gates have his own faction of big tech? You know, are each of those industries is, is Bezos and Gates and Thiel and Zuckerberg and Ellison. Are these like the new JP Morgan and Chase and Rockefeller? Are these the new Robert Barons? Are these the new crop of, you know, putting on the Ritz billionaires? And if so, where do they align? And if so, where do their paths diverge? Who is fighting shoulder to shoulder? Is anybody fighting shoulder to shoulder? It seems to me that there's, there's a lot of division. And I just I don't thoroughly understand the, the alignment. I know that this election is critical. 
And it doesn't matter who gets in. There's going to be an event. There's going to be something catastrophic after the election, regardless of who gets in. Right? Let's face it. Just the fact that we're not going to see any debates, the fact that we don't even get to have any say in the candidates at all, obviously. The fact that the biggest swing states right now are being locked down and prepared to vote in a fashion that can be manipulated. You know, the fact that all these states with the biggest hits are all Democratic states with Democratic governors. You know, I don't know. I don't truly understand the ramifications. I don't think anybody understands what's about to happen. Like it's going to be catastrophic. The election is going to be contested. Both sides have a plan for upheaval if they don't win. Could this be Could this be the last American election? I think it could be. It could be. Let me let me let me unpack that a little bit. This may be the last presidential election, presidential election of its kind. I think that's more accurately stated. There is a book by Parag Khanna, and he is a, I believe he's out of Singapore. And he is a really interesting guy that wrote a book called Connect, Connectography. Oh my gosh. Connect, connectography. Connectography. And on the cover, it looks, it's the world, and it looks, it has all these lines around it, and it almost looks like a, a brain map. You know what I mean by that? Like, where, have you seen like a, uh, like an fMRI image of a brain that has all the connections in there. If you haven't, look it up. And then look up Dr. Parag Khanna's book, Connectography, and you'll see that it's, it's supposed to look like that. And the point he makes in the book is that, and this book was written, oh gosh, 10 years ago, eight years ago, seven years ago. But it was... It was in the top five of the CFR book list. It was heavily pushed by people in the tech community. And it's a book about supply chains. And it makes the argument that a shift in supply chains will have catastrophic effects for the countries of the world. And in that book, he made the case that supply chains change governments. You know, the only reason Singapore is so successful is because of where they sit geographically. They have a big harbor right there. But if there was another place that was built similar to Singapore in a more strategic area, Singapore would die. 
And by die, I mean it would be economically weakened to the point where they would be back to third world status. Unless they institute some sort of, you know, business-friendly tone like Ireland did. <clears throat> so if you, if you think about Parag Khanna's book, start thinking about the China's Built and Road Initiative. Right? This is, this is China creating a new Silk Road throughout the world. And if you think that that is only taking place in Eastern Asia, think again. You can look up China's Silk and Road project and you can see the infrastructure being built in South America. In fact, you can see the proposed ideas for China's Silk Road that come up through South America and into North America and into Canada. And China has been very aggressively promoting the, this project. And the way their system works is it, it doesn't care about the rules of the nation in which it invests. It just says, look, let me build the fucking road through here, man. I don't, dude, you hate all fucking purple people? I don't care. I just want to build a road, man. Oh, you like to shoot anybody that's fucking over six feet tall? I don't care. I just want to build the road. They don't try to enforce any morality or any rights. They're like, look, we just want the resource. We're going to build this thing here. And you know what? We're going to use the road for resources. But if you want to use the road to transport six foot people you're going to shoot in the head, we don't care. We don't care. And that's very attractive to companies that don't want to play by an ethical rule book. It's very attractive to people that care about money for money's sake. And it plays well with the dummies that are like, you know, the free markets, man. The best idea wins. Well, the problem with that is that the best idea is usually the person with the most money. And those are two different things. Another interesting point in Parag Khanna's book is that he talks about the future of world power will be broken up into smaller units so that they're going away from nationalism and the seat of power will lie in the city. So instead of having the real power being in the federal government, you'll have the power being Instead of there being California, there will be L.A., San Francisco, San Diego. You know, these, these, the city will be the seat of power instead of the state being the city of power. And it's, it's, it's complex. Like in some ways you're like, well, maybe that could be better. Yeah, Maybe. Maybe. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm all for change. I'm all for things getting better. But it's, it's really easy to tear shit down. It's hard to build things up. So it's important that you have a plan before you start tearing shit down. And I don't, like, getting back full circle, I don't know... 
I'm not sure what's the right side to be on. Like, I love my country. I love the people in my community. I love, I love it. I know there's problems, but I still love it. And when people start talking about, we got to tear this fucking thing down. Well, what are we going to put in its place? What's it going to look like? And what makes me upset is the fucking people that are tearing it down don't want to share that fucking idea. Hey, fuckers, what are we going to build? Peter, Zuckerberg, fucking Newsom, Pelosi, Trump. What the fuck are we going to build? Why don't you fucking let us know what your goddamn plan is? The fact that they don't want to tell us what the plan is makes me not like it. Like, if you want to fucking win, why don't you try to rally some fucking people to your cause? Instead of just divide and conquer... Why not try to build some shit? See, I don't get it. You know, I, I, divide and conquer. That just leads to fucking profit and mayhem. You can't build a better city by dividing and conquering. You can't build anything better by dividing and conquering. All you can do is enslave and trap and intensify the chaos. It's a good book. Dr. Prague Connectigraphy. It talks all about supply chains. And his point is that that's what we're seeing right now is a war for supply chains. Kind of dovetails nice with the von Clausewitz, the German general, had a book on war. And he said that anybody who wants... Okay, think about geography. The United States is like a big island. It's not an island, I know, but just it's surrounded by ocean, right? So it's kind of like the biggest landmass that's protected and it's united. The only bigger one would be Europe. And Europe is known as the world's island. And there's a long-term strategy that says in order to control the world's island, you must control the world island heartland. And that is the Middle East. And that's why there's always war there. That's why when Russia went down to try to unify Europe and Russia and Asia, they try to connect the Middle East. And that's why the U.S. goes in there and just fucking throws a goddamn wrench in that shit. You know, that's the divide and conquer strategy. Hey, we can't let people rule that area because then they have an opportunity to unify the world's island. That's why we're pushing all the ideas about the Uyghur population in China. Like we're trying to destabilize them. We don't want those guys fucking running too much shit. But we're spending so much goddamn time destabilizing everybody else that those same tactics are being used against us. Well, that being said, my friends, I think we said a lot today. And I love you guys, man. I love you. I hope that your day is filled with thought-provoking ideas that are your own ideas. I hope you go home and you, you kiss your wife on the cheek or you kiss your husband on the cheek and you give your kids a big squeeze. Fellas, I'm going to leave you with this one right here. Here's something you should do. When you wake up next to your girlfriend or your wife or right before you go to bed, just re- snuggle up next to her and get in her ear and be like, baby, I love you. I just want you to know I'll fucking kill people for you. 
I will fucking murder people for you, my love. I love you. Now, I'm not saying you go do that. But every man's woman should know that you'll kill people for her. I'm not saying kill people. Don't get me wrong, damn it. Don't take that out of context. I'm saying, as a man, you should tell your woman that. And you should tell your woman that right before she goes to bed. Or right when she wakes up in the morning. So it's the last thing she hears or the first thing she hears. And while we're at it, here's another thing you can do. Pick a day of the week. Say Sunday. And wake your wife up with one of her favorite songs. My wife likes Mariah Carey. And so, you know that song? And then a hero comes along. So what I do is on Sundays, sometimes Saturdays and Sundays, like I'll, I'll wake her up, but she'll be sleeping and I'll put that song on and specifically that part. So my wife wakes up to it. Now I want you to think about that. She wakes up to a song she loves being played by a man she loves. But the message of that song says, and then a hero comes along. You see, that is neuro-linguistic programming. I am reinforcing on multiple levels that I am that hero coming along for my wife. And now every time she hears that song, she thinks of me coming into the room to wake her up. When she hears the word hero, she thinks of her husband. You see, you can make people think things about you if you're willing to take the time to understand how behavior works. So do it. I love you. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.